Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the importance of the Stonewall Riot and its legacy. We're marking the anniversary of the Korean War and the ongoing struggle against imperialism on the Korean Peninsula. And it's Tuesday. So it's time for another segment of Tech for the People. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... On the night of June 28, 1969, the New York Police Department conducted one of the many raids of clubs that catered to the gay and transgender community in New York City. Having lined the patrons of the Stonewall Inn up and demanded their ID, cops cited a statute that allowed for the arrest of people not wearing three articles of clothing appropriate to their sex assigned at birth and the pretense of arresting people who were soliciting homosexual relations to harass, humiliate, and detain gender nonconforming people. As regular and expected as the targeting by the police was, the gay and transgender community at Stonewall could not take the humiliation, harassment, and violence any longer. Throwing trash cans and coins in response to the cops' violence against the patrons of the Stonewall Inn, coins because the money that was paid to the cops was supposed to pay for protection against these kinds of raids, what began as a refusal by the gay and trans community to quietly submit to the latest act of inhumanity against them became a riot and became an uprising, and ultimately a movement for justice and equality for gender non-binary people. Coins and trash cans became bricks and flaming cocktails. Windows were shadowed. The protesters at Stonewall weren't just fighting back against this single act of violent injustice. They were standing up against a system of repeated oppression, unrelenting humiliation, and constant dehumanization. The details of how the uprising unfolded, however, are lost in legend. Many credit pioneering trans activist Marsha P. Johnson for throwing that first brick. Many believe that Stormé de Laverie, a black lesbian activist, is the famous thrower of the first punch, the one who turned to the onlookers and demanded, why don't you guys do something? Others credit trans activist Sylvia Rivera for throwing the first bottle or Molotov cocktail. But Johnson herself clarified that she didn't arrive until the place was already on fire. Rivera said she didn't throw the first cocktail. Regardless, these legends in the struggle for LGBTQ rights continued with that struggle. Johnson, herself an activist and self-identified drag queen and performer, her dear friend Sylvia Rivera, a Latina gay liberation and transgender rights activist, and others led a series of uprisings in protest at and after the Stonewall Raid. Because of the sustained resistance over the next four days in the community that LGBTQ plus people carved out for themselves against their oppression, organization and activism among them grew. 
Not only did the first gay pride parades follow in 1970, but Johnson and Rivera went on to found STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, group to support young transgender people. But Stonewall was not the first milestone in the long struggle for LGBTQ plus rights in this country. Tolerance.org notes that as early as 1950s, groups like the Mattachine Society and Daughters of Belitis were opposing job discrimination against LGBTQ plus people. Queer people at San Francisco's Compton's Cafeteria, Philadelphia's Dewey Restaurant and Los Angeles's Black Cat Tavern all protested to demand access to public accommodations and freedom from police harassment. But it was the riot at Stonewall that galvanized the movement. Johnson said in an interview in 1972 that her ambition was, quote, to see gay people liberated and free and to have equal rights that other people have in America, with her gay brothers and sisters out of jail and on the streets again. There have been gains in the struggle for justice and equality for LGBTQ plus people since then, certainly. The Supreme Court recently ruled that employers cannot fire workers for being gay or transgender, but workplace discrimination such as denying promotions, not hiring at all, and harassment against LGBTQ plus people still exists and contributes to high rates of poverty among all LGBTQ plus people. And with the resurgent right wing in this country, anti-transgender bills are being passed in GOP-run state legislatures. And the Supreme Court has signaled that it is ready to re-examine previous rulings recognizing same-sex marriage. And even they're considering reviewing rulings against sodomy laws that they are sure to overturn. Those gains are swiftly being eroded. Fifty-three years after the Stonewall riots, As the attacks on LGBTQ plus people and their rights intensify, I can't help but wonder who will throw the first brick this time. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. I'm happy to be joined by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukina to talk about the Stonewall riots and the legacy of them. Morgan, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really glad that you could join me today to talk about this. Obviously, on June 28th in 1969, uh, the Stonewall riots occurred at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, which was a bar in Greenwich Village uh, that catered to the gay community. And the police presence there uh, was a, supposed to be like a part of a routine raid and and an arrest, which happened pretty frequently. Uh, at, at establishments that were frequented by the gay and trans community there. You know, what does the history of repression against gay and transgender people so recently in the United States, 1969, tell us about where we are today? It, it almost feels like a boomerang 
effect that we 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 had this momentous moment from uh, the Stonewall riots. And that wasn't certainly the first of the uh, milestones of, uh, you know, the the struggle for rights for LGBTQ plus people. But it was a galvanizing moment. How do you contextualize the importance of Stonewall in the struggles that are ongoing for LGBTQ plus people today, Morgan? Yeah, I think I think that the one of the most important things about the Stonewall uprising is, as you said, its context, because there had been other, you know, uprisings, um, even about many of the same issues about police violence, police raids on, you know, queer establishments and and things like that for 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 several years. By that point, there had been several others like um, Cooper's Donut and uh, Compton's Cafeteria Riot and the Black Cat and several others. But that one in 1969, it happened at this at this really decisive moment when really all of all of American society was kind of in upheaval. You had the war in Vietnam and the movement against that. And you had the um, black power movement. You had the Young Lords and um, and the the women's liberation movement. Uh, So there was there was all of these really powerful social forces in motion fighting for social change and rejecting, you know, the ostracism and the isolationism of of, uh, that these different groups had been suffered and the economic and political oppression. And so the gay liberation movement, as it was called at the time, you know, emerged as another aspect of that. And in the days and weeks after the Stonewall uprising, a lot of the old kind of um, acceptance-oriented uh, gay and lesbian groups really kind of saw these decisive splits and these more militant versions uh, come out, like the Gay Liberation Front, uh, which was a, a gay liberation group that was named in honor of the National Liberation Fronts in South Vietnam and in Algeria. You know, so there was really a direct anti-imperialist, you know, pro-socialist attitude to this movement for for not just gay acceptance, but for gay liberation. Uh, and I think it's important today because you begin to see um, a lot of those same forces coming together again to 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 fight for LGBTQ liberation as it's now called and and those same people are not the same people really but those same movements plugging into the fight for um, black liberation the fight against racist police terror the fight against U.S. imperialism and and, and colonialism and uh, you know tenants rights and so many other things um, that those you're, you're seeing this coalescence again and when those forces come together there's almost nothing they can't accomplish. Yeah. And and when we're thinking about all of those connected issues uh, that uh, arose uh, from the Stonewall riots, when people uh, responded saying that we're not just uh, fighting against uh, gender or, you know, discrimination against non-binary people, we're also, you know, rising up against the very system that the discrimination exists in, that creates all of those different oppressions that we face that are also connected to other people. So even before Stonewall, even before that uprising happened, there were laws in every state in the United States that criminalized uh, literally homosexual conduct from the 1920s 
through the 1960s. And, and how did the, the history of struggle that led up to the Stonewall uprising, how did that evolve, Morgan? What, what, what were the key moments that led up to LGBTQ plus people at the Stonewall Inn saying enough is enough and not just, you know, resisting uh, oppression in a polite way, but literally uh, starting a riot with bricks and trash cans thrown at the police and saying this is a legitimate response to the constant violence of the state against us? Yeah, well, well, like I said, there were these other kind of other uprisings too, and some of these were quite, you know, substantial. Think about um, Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which happened in San Francisco in um, August 1966. You know, where there was this late night. It was very similar. The police, you know, were were uh, harassing and 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 everything. This. Um, place that was frequented by like drag queens and uh, like queer uh, sex workers and trans women. And it had been a kind of rising snowball that kind of exploded at you know, that moment. Um, but there um, a lot, there's a lot of other factors that play into it. And it doesn't just come from American society, but also um, from in particular in the 1960s, you had the growing influence of Cuba mm. and, a lot of the there was a lot of gay activists who were not necessarily fighting for gay liberation, but they were in, you know, students for a democratic society. They were in the Communist Party. They were in all these many other activist groups. And, for example, um, there's many of them went to Cuba um, as part of what were called the Venceremos Brigades. Um, these these volunteers who went to help with the uh, with the sugar harvest um, because of this shortage of manpower and the severe economic oppression that Cuba was subjected to in the 1960s after the U.S. implemented its total blockade as punishment for the Cubans daring to make a government for themselves. And there they encountered what the Cubans call the revolution within the revolution, which is this uh, comprehensive movement to fight uh, not just against the exploitation of capitalism, but also to fight against the exploitation and oppression of patriarchy and confronting machismo and the domination of men over women. And later on in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in Cuba, that really grew into a powerful movement against homophobia and transphobia too. But even in the 60s, you had these gay activists going there and they could see that this was the next step, you know, of that fight. And uh, and here in the U.S. too, you know, you have people in the Black Panthers, you have Huey Newton, you know, saying these, this, you know, um, we have to confront this, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. And in the Young Lords, um, uh, talking about, you know, again, looking to to Cuba and other places as its inspiration. And so that really kind of helped to seed this idea of this fight for for socialism and liberation going beyond just questions of class uh, and. Um, of course, race was also recognized as an, a much, you know, added uh, uh, element of that fight too. And so now it was like, well, we need to talk about how gender is a part of that as well, and sexuality. Yeah, and I think that 
as we're watching the uh, states, uh, particularly uh, particularly the GOP-led legislatures pass, once again, uh, uh, bills that attack uh, homosexual people and particularly transgender uh, children uh, to keep them from playing sports. Uh, And as we're seeing the Supreme Court signaling that they are uh, willing and quite ready to overturn uh, recent Supreme Court decisions that uh, recognized gay marriage, that uh, struck down uh, sodomy laws that existed throughout the United States. I think that we we are not understanding the history of brutal police repression that was uh, uh, prevalent against the LGBTQ plus community that led to the Stonewall riot. So I'm wondering if you can give people some context into what uh, gay and trans people faced on on an almost daily basis uh, in this country that was a key part of the people at Stonewall saying we're not taking this kind of treatment anymore. Because while, you know, legislation, passing legislation to criminalize behavior that some some people deem uh, immoral or, or however they see it, that's certainly repressive. But there was an element of violence that uh, was involved in the police raids that I think people don't have a clear context on. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, so much was literally illegal to have gay sex was illegal. And, and I mean, by the legal definition of sodomy, of course, is kind of the Christian definition of sodomy, where it doesn't just include um, gay sex. It also includes, you know, sex with anybody who you're not married to. You know, so it was kind of a very wide reaching, but it was specifically against gay people. Um, it was illegal for trans people to exist in public. Um, you, there were literally laws that said that you had to be wearing a certain number of articles of clothing of like, quote unquote, your gender, meaning the gender you were assigned at birth. And police would stop you in the street and, and undress you and count them. And if you, you know, were were assigned male at birth and you were not wearing three or four, whatever it was, articles of male clothing, you were breaking the law and they would take you to jail for that. So, you know, it was it was very it was very dangerous just to exist as an LGBTQ person um, to say nothing of the the economic uh, factors of being marginalized. Um, There was, of course, the infamous lavender scare uh, where uh, gay people were hounded out of the federal government. Thousands of gay people were fired or forced, you know, to, 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 to quit to save their careers because of this kind of McCarthyism uh, of, of saying that, you know, gay people are a danger or they're a liability or whatever. So a lot of gay people and especially a lot of trans people were forced into marginalized industries, uh, sex work and things like that. And even the bars, as you mentioned, you know, the, the bars were not just normal bars. Uh, they, they were owned and operated by the mafia um, because they were illegal. It was, you know, a place for people to gather and, you know, who were who were banned in public. And that was one of the reasons why the police were able to shake down bars like the Stonewall was because that was their kind of payment, the corruption, the, the protection money. And one of the things that set off the riot at Stonewall was the fact that the bar had already paid up that month and the police came by to shake them down for a second time. Right. The 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 it's the 28th of the month. So they've already been there once this month. They decided to come by again. And that was a big part of that, too. So it was uh, it was it was people really forced into living in the margins. 
And, uh, and I think a lot of the, the movement against um, LGBTQ rights now, if you really kind of add up what they amount to, is an effort to force us back into those margins and to, to, to end the growing acceptance in everyday life of LGBTQ people uh, and, uh, and, and make us kind of unwanted and unseen again. And as we are, you know, as I said, watching uh, uh, anti-LGBTQ plus legislation uh, being passed across the country, I'm recalling, you know, Anita Bryant's campaign that, you know, repealed the gay rights uh, ordinance in, in Florida. I'm recalling the moral majority with Jerry Falwell equating homosexuals to uh, pedophiles and saying that they are recruiting children. I'm wondering, Morgan, are you feeling like we are reaching another Stonewall moment in this country. Do you see us going on the path of getting to another Stonewall moment? And do we need another Stonewall Stonewall moment in this country? Well, in terms of a catalyzing force, um, I think that we've already kind of had one. You know, I think about how in in the summer of 2020, um, after uh, after George Floyd was murdered and we saw that massive nationwide uprising, we also saw as a part of that the largest uh, demonstrations in defense of trans trans lives in U.S. history. You know, they, those happen as, as a part of that in New York and in Boston um, and in some other places where. It was plainly obvious that 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 especially black trans women were were really deserving to be given greater focus in that. And they didn't you know, so so uh, I think that there is already a kind of catalyzing moment that we've had that is kind of it's not concentrated in one explosive day. But I think that it's I think that it's unfolding across several years. And I think that that's that's a really powerful thing that they're afraid of. Absolutely. They are definitely afraid of us if we unite and organize. And that is why we advocate it so much on this show. And I hope that we continue to do it. Thank you so much, Morgan Archukina, for joining me today to talk about this important milestone in history. But we're going to leave it there for this segment on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the police political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are commemorating and remembering the Korean War. And I'm happy to be joined by Ju Yoon Park, member of No Do Tall for Korean Community Development. Ju Yun, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Jackie. Great to be with you again. Thank you for having me back on. Very glad to have you on today to talk about uh, the end of the Korean War and the struggle to end the war um, 70 years ago. And I think there is a lot about the Korean War that we don't, we in the U.S. don't understand 
Uh, we we don't understand, I think, aside from a few popularized entertainment like television shows like MASH, that literally is my first reference to the Korean War in this country. Uh, and then I find out, you know, through history that, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, as, as sanitized and, and entertaining as the television show made it. It was an incredibly brutal war. You know, what about the Korean War that we don't know in this country that we need to understand as we recognize the end of the war uh, today? Yes. So um, thank you for the question. I definitely agree that uh, there's a big hole in uh, collective memory around the Korean War in the United States. And I think that's for a few different reasons. I think to begin, generally speaking, the U.S. has an investment in upholding this idea of justified military action, and that's why they're always making World War II films. But even for more recent wars like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, there isn't much public discussion about these events or really what they mean for the rest of the world or for this country in particular. Vietnam may be a little bit of an exception because of the significance of that war to the movement, uh, sorry, and the movement against it uh, in the politics of the generation of the 1960s and 70s. Opposition to the Vietnam War developed alongside the rise of a revolutionary movement in the U.S., but in the 1950s, that movement didn't really exist, particularly among white Americans. So Korea never became the consciousness of a generation of radicals in the way that Vietnam did. And if we compare the two periods, I think one of the most important factors is the relative prosperity of the 1950s and kind of the lingering moral high of World War II, which were still in play. Now, there were brave and principled uh, revolutionaries who opposed the war, Claudia Jones, Paul Robeson, Lorraine Hansberry, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, But most people found nothing to oppose at the time. And I think for that reason, it didn't really become a major part of U.S. political culture in quite the same way. And, uh, you know, the lingering effect of that is that it continues to not be remembered to this day. Now, um, at the same time, I do think the U.S. also has to recognize the Korean War in a limited way because it's so important to the current politics of the Pacific. The U.S. uh, has a vested interest in also narrating the Korean War as a good war. Um, But there's a tension at work here because The war can't be completely forgotten for political reasons, but it also can't be fully investigated because doing that might reveal the many atrocities the U.S. is responsible for. And so while the U.S. is uh, constantly navigating this contradiction, I think we can see that apparent in the kinds of cultural products that get put out, uh, the few that there are about the Korean War. There is a Hollywood movie coming about about the Korean War later this year, which is the first one in a long time. And I don't think it's an accident that in this particular instance, they are focusing on the story of a black Navy pilot confronting the vestiges of Jim Crow in the military in some ways that is actually an easier topic to stomach than what the, those same U.S. pilots were actually doing to the people of Korea in their bombing runs across the country. So I think that there are both historical reasons and many political reasons for why we uh, receive particular the particular narratives about Korea that we do. And I think, uh, you know, the narratives around the war actually begin with how the war started or when the war started. There's, you know, the documentation says or, or the documented history says that the war started on June 25th in 1950. But actually, there were issues between the North and the South on the Korean Peninsula before then. And I wonder how extensively that prehistory of the 
formal or formally recognized start of the war plays into how we understand the Korean War today? Uh, yes, absolutely. There is a vested interest on the U.S. side of placing a firm start date for the Korean War on June 25th, 1950, which is when the Korean People's Army crossed the uh, 38th parallel into the south. Um, but that really does not take into account the past five years of what had happened in Korea prior to that point. Korea was a colony of Japan uh, until the end of World War II, and it was after Japan's defeat that uh, the U.S., decided to unilaterally impose a policy of division in two occupation zones on Korea. This was not something that uh, they consulted Koreans themselves about. They didn't even really consult the Soviets. They just kind of told them that this was how it was going to be, and uh, the Soviet Union chose not to fight them on the issue. And originally, they were supposed to work together with the Soviets to create a, a single election for a unified government. Uh, those plans ultimately fell through. And what happened instead was uh, in the South, the U.S. military eliminated the sort of uh, indigenous governing structures that had arisen, the People's Committees, um, which had attempted to form a provisional uh, republic of their own prior to the arrival of U.S. troops. And the U.S. saw this as a threat to their own sovereignty and basically made sure to drive those forces underground, uh, kill and repress um, as many of those activists as they could, uh, using in many, most cases, the same police officers, the same military, the same bureaucrats who had served the Japanese colonial officials. Meanwhile, in the North, uh, the People's Committees actually continued to operate in the open and formed the basis of the future state that would arise. Now, um, as a result of the failure of uh, negotiations around holding a unified election, the U.S. decided to use its position in the United Nations in order to sort of construct a ersatz or false election that would only take place in the South, but would somehow um, apply to all the people of Korea. And uh, this was the process through which uh, the government that we now know today as South Korea was formed. Now, this was not something that was uh, received well by the Korean people on either side of the DMZ, or not the DMZ at the time, the 38th parallel. Um, and there wasn't really a sense among most people that this was a legitimate process. And we can see that reflected in the fact that armed rebellion arose in the South. Uh, on Jeju Island uh, in the spring of 1948, there was a massive uprising, which ultimately ended in the slaughter of close to 60,000 people uh, through the combined efforts of the newly formed South Korean government and the United States military. Um, in the southern cities of Yosu and Suncheon, there were also uh, mutinies from soldiers themselves who refused to deploy to Jeju, who then went on to form a guerrilla war that continued uh, well into the 1950s, actually past the point of the signing of the armistice. So there is a lot of background to the conflict in uh, Korea that was building over time. Um, it was only after the formation of a southern government that the North uh, officially consolidated itself as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And for the two years between the formation of these two states in 1948 and the formal outbreak of war in 1950, there were a large number of armed clashes along the 38th parallel, uh, including attempts by uh, the southern military to actually seize and hold territory north of the 38th parallel. So there isn't really such a neat point at which we can really say the war began because there was a state of generalized civil warfare really happening across the peninsula, particularly concentrated in the south for years prior to uh, what is officially recognized as the formal start of the war. And, you know, Chiu Yun, the war actually lasted three years, the official from the official start of the war to the 
uh, end of the war, which only ended in an armistice and not a peace treaty. What was the impact of the U.S. involvement in the war in regard to what the United States was after uh, that created uh, the, the tensions that we still see today uh, that, that we are still experiencing with relations with uh, North and South Korea? Right. Uh, so I think an important point to stress is that uh, because the war, ca- the fighting uh, came to a conclusion with an armistice, from a legal perspective, an armistice is just a ceasefire. So the legal state of war does continue. Um, and that really does shape the way in which all the parties approach the issue um, because there hasn't been an actual permanent resolution of the conflict. I think What's important to note about the armistice itself is that there were very special conditions in the armistice that called for the uh, very quick withdrawal of all foreign troops, including the United States and uh, the UN command under which it was operating. Um, It also called for a resumption of peace talks to realize an actual treaty that would bring about a formal conclusion to the war itself. Um, As we can see, neither of these conditions were abided by in just a few short years, the U.S. would uh, sign a mutual defense pact uh, with South Korea, which would consolidate its military presence in the South, uh, a military presence that still not has ended to this day. There are still 30,000 uh, soldiers um, stationed in South Korea at this time, and South Korea also houses the largest U.S. military base outside of North America. So in terms of uh, how we understand the way that the war and uh, the armistice continue to shape the politics of Korea, um, I think, you know, something that's probably most important to grasp is that all U.S. relations with Korea only really make sense in the context of warfare. The DPRK is under international sanctions, and the U.S. uses international organizations to isolate it as a pariah on the world stage. This is effectively a siege strategy, and as in any good siege, the U.S. is not only seeking to starve out North Koreans, but also encircle them militarily, which it's achieving through its military bases in South Korea, Japan, and throughout the Pacific. Now, as we can probably gather, the South is a key U.S. asset, not only in this war, but in the broader projection of military power into Asia. And South Korea's military operates under the command of U.S. generals in wartime. Uh, South Korea is also a key economic asset. All these big U.S. monopolies, Facebook, Google, Apple, they don't really have anything without the international tech supply chain. And South Korea is a key link in that chain as a semiconductor producer which for the most part are not made in the United States, but you know, form the basis of the wealth of these uh, tech companies. Now, at the end of the Korean War, South Korea's economy was among the least developed on Earth, but today it's a G20 nation. And this transition happened because the South received preferential U.S. investment and aid over the past 70 years. Now, the reasons for that are multiple and very complicated. Uh, South Korea fought in the Vietnam War. Its industrial development benefited U.S. investors and also allowed U.S. capitalists to offshore production. The South Korean bourgeoisie was also very savvy in its determination to develop local productive forces in ways that some other client states were not. And of course, the U.S. has an ideological investment in supporting advanced capitalism in South Korea. Yet without the background of the ongoing Korean War, all that development would have played out very differently, precisely because the kind of uh, militarized development that took place depended on the crucial role of military relations with the U.S. 
And this sounds to me like a, a cautionary tale, if not one of the enduring examples of the uh, the dangers or the realities of what Western-style capitalism that was uh, adopted or some might argue was imposed on South Korea, but not in the North. So what do we need to know or understand about North Korea that we get completely wrong as we realize uh, on today commemorating uh, the start of the Korean War the, the realities of U.S. involvement in in the war and in shaping the two countries that came out of it? Well, I think the most important thing to note is that the U.S. bombing campaign over North Korea was, at the time, one of the most vicious that had ever happened um, in world history. There were 635,000 tons of bombs dropped on the north, uh, more than 30,000 tons of napalm bomb deployed as well. This was more explosives than were used in the entire Pacific theater during World War II. And uh, the death toll was absolutely almost incomprehensible. We're looking at something like uh, one-sixth to a fifth of the entire population of the North um, pretty much eliminated. Uh, talking three or four million uh, dead Koreans along with a million Chinese uh, who had volunteered uh, to fight in the Korean War in order to um, prevent the U.S.'s imperialist uh, ventures into the continent. And I think the biggest misconception today is that North Korea's military capabilities are offensive in nature, that all of the missiles and the nukes are there so that the DPRK can one day attack the West. Mm -hmm. And that goes against the entire historical arc of the war. It was specifically the United States that divided Korea in the first place, that installed a separate government in the South, that intervened when the division of the country inevitably led to civil war. And it's the, also the U.S. that has refused to entertain peace negotiations since the armistice was signed in 1953, that will not withdraw troops from the peninsula after so many decades, um, and that has only really escalated against North Korea or the DPRK since the armistice was signed. From 1957 to 1991, the U.S. stationed hundreds of tactical nukes in South Korea pointed right at the North. And from the 1980s onwards, the U.S. began hosting annual joint military exercises rehearsing invasions of the North. So when the DPRK says its military capabilities are for defensive purposes, they mean it. They have clear and present evidence that the U.S. would stage a new invasion if given the opportunity, and they also have historical evidence that the U.S. is not a friend. Now, with that said, another thing that people in the United States should understand is that this is not what the DPRK wants. They have been very clear that they prefer friendly and mutually beneficial relationships with the entire world. They would prefer peace and mutual prosperity, but they won't abandon their sovereignty or their independence for that. Now, the United States says that if North Korea wants to trade, they have to demolish their entire system of government and open up their country to be ruled by Wall Street. All North Korea says the U.S. needs to do is to leave Korea. They don't try to make any demands about how U.S. society or its economy should be run. A peaceful end of the Korean War is possible, but to do that, the United States needs to give up its war economy, which is something the people of the U.S. should be demanding every day for the sake of the world and for the sake of themselves. We have a combination climate catastrophe, global pandemic, recession, and mass extinction event on our hands. We need the productive powers of the entire world directed towards solutions to those problems, not towards printing dollars and building weapons of mass destruction, which is basically all the U.S. economy is at this point. Americans don't need to end the Korean War to save Koreans. We'll take care of ourselves. But Americans should end the Korean War to save themselves. So I think that would be the message that I would want to leave. 
Absolutely. And in light of the newly elected uh, right-wing government that has been elected in South Korea, how do you see the struggle toward uh, peace uh, involving the, the issues that you just raised as people in South Korea are mobilizing workers in South Korea, are mobilizing for labor rights? How do you see we in the U.S. can show solidarity with people in South Korea and North Korea to push for peace on the Korean Peninsula? I think it's really a matter of uh, getting the house in order um, within the United States. Uh, The U.S. is a key driver, I would argue the primary driver of a lot of these conditions uh, today. Uh, Many of the same capitalists in South Korea who are exploiting the workforce have deep ties to U.S. finance, to, um, you know, the U.S. political class. there's really no way to view them as entirely separate from one another. They are deeply linked and deeply interconnected. And at the same time, uh, the problems facing everyday North Koreans primarily come from the situation of international sanctions, from the DPRK's international isolation, uh, all of which are consequences of the ongoing state of war. So what needs to happen is the war needs to end. And uh, part and parcel of the war ending is uh, really... A a broader process of social and political transformation within the United States itself. Uh, The U.S. today runs on a war economy, and this war economy was birthed in many ways through the Korean War. It was the Korean War that quadrupled the U.S.'s military budget. It uh, provided a lot of the contracts and the military outlays that saved the military-industrial complex after World War II and turned it into this kind of modern behemoth that is constantly looking to start wars so that it can continue to, um, you know, build arms and you know implements of destruction that really don't add any kind of value um, to to humanity. And uh, so it's really this process of transformation that I think is primary. And so that's really a roundabout way of saying, you know, Americans need to pursue their own political struggle within the United States um, to achieve the kinds of uh, changes that uh, will be required, the kind of revolution that will be needed um, in order to bring down uh, not only the military and com- military industrial complex, but the broader system of imperialism uh, that the U.S. is really um, – Uh, really at the head of uh, on the world stage uh, at this moment in history. So I think uh, there is um, there is a powerful argument for, you know, deep solidarities that exist. But the primary uh, form in which that solidarity is pursued is through advancing struggle on whatever front that uh, people may find themselves, whether, you know, that's in their workplace, within their schools, uh, within their neighborhoods. Any strike, any blow that you can land on imperialism, you should be pursuing it from where you are. And uh, that's how we're going to collectively move the struggle forward. Absolutely, we are. We want to thank you so much, Hugh Yoon Park, for joining me today, for talking about uh, commemorating the Korean War and how we get to peace on the Korean Peninsula. We're going to leave it there for this segment. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, friends, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, and we are happy to be joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining me this week. Oh, great to be back with you again, Jackie. Thank you. And Chris, as usual, uh, the Alphabet Company is up to some shenanigans claiming to be doing something good for the people by getting involved in health care. Why should we be very concerned about Alphabet becoming or trying to be a force in health care? Well, look, it's Google and it's personal health care information. I think uh, we cover the segment right there, right? Just putting those two <laughs> things next to each other. But really, I mean, I, when we look at this, right, health care is a multi-trillion dollar industry in the United States. It's uh, according to the economist here, it is 17 percent of the GDP. And that, you know, that's pharmaceuticals, that's hospitals, doctors, all of those things combined, right? We have this entire industry built up around profiting from healthcare, profiting whether it's uh, going to the hospital, having to have insurance to go to the hospital, private doctors, all of those things. And Google Alphabet, the parent company of Google, wants in on that, in fact, has been in on that for, for a little bit now. But they're realizing, really, that uh, most of the big tech companies, and we're talking about Amazon, Apple, uh, Meta, also known as Facebook, Microsoft, all kind of getting involved in one way or another in the health industry. Of course, there is the wearables. That's one of the big ones. Um, You know, many people have the Apple Watch, uh, you know, to track their steps and, and heart rate and things like that. Or maybe you have a Fitbit, which was actually bought by Google back in 2019. Um, and there's others that work with, you know, other various products. You know, the health, not just the wearables that are tracking kind of every step you take, your heart rate during the day, and depending on how new and advanced they are, can really track a whole lot of things about you. There's also the issue of record keeping and centralizing medical data, patient data in one place. And that could be extremely useful. I remember going to a doctor and they would have to pull out, you know, a giant file of my information. And if I'm started going to see a new doctor that has a fax or mail all that information over, it was very, very difficult to make sure that your doctors could see all of the relevant information about you. And so we've been digitizing this information in hospital systems and in uh, insurance networks, and that's good. But Google Microsoft, others want a piece of that action. And that's where the concern really comes in, because these companies don't exist to guarantee our privacy. They don't exist to guarantee our right to access health care or even our right to access our own information on our health care history. They exist to make money. And of course, it would be a gross violation. And I think no one would stand for Google directly using your or my healthcare data to show us ads. I think they even know that that would be a step too far. But what they can still do is use trends. They can say people in this area, people of you know in this age range, and so on and so forth, who maybe also have these other interests, uh, 
have this medical condition or are predispositioned to another medical condition or maybe would be interested in this pill or that service. And they could use that as well. The, the idea of these companies and all of them, Meta, Google, Microsoft, Apple, um, Amazon even, getting involved in the storage or dissemination of healthcare information Really, they have no business doing it. There is no place for these giant for-profit companies uh, in, in healthcare. Yeah, the, the the Fitbit news is really uh, shocking. I actually did not know that uh, Fitbit was bought by uh, the Alphabet company. I actually own a Fitbit. I'm wearing one right now. And I do check it pretty regularly, so I'm going to have to go in and check my privacy settings and 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 see how I can uh, mitigate my data being uh, mined by the Alphabet companies. But you know, when we're talking about these tech companies, these these tech giants turning into uh, techno pharmacologists almost, you know, having all of our health data and access to it, this is raising obviously privacy issues and the fact that these services uh, that collect our data are touching on privacy issues actually connect to the recent. Uh, Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, which is actually resulting in some interesting legislative movement by U.S. senators uh, and other legislators to ask the FTC to investigate Apple and Google for engaging in unfair and deceptive practices with the collection of data that's supposed to be private and the sales. So what do we know about this very interesting connection between uh, the violation of uh, privacy rights that uh, Roe, uh, that the uh, Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade uh, signals to uh, now senators and, and other legislators probing these tech companies for violating our privacy through their through their products? Yeah, we're seeing this really super interesting to me contradiction uh, in that, you know, many tech companies and, and other companies as well, we should say this, are saying publicly, we will give our employees time off if they need to travel to get an abortion. We'll cover costs up to four or five thousand dollars, whatever it is, you know, it'll be taken care of. But at the same time, companies like Google and Meta are basically replying no comment when asked if they're going to stop collecting and sharing data that could be used to enforce the draconian laws that states are have already or are putting into place, uh, you know, just to, to, to punish people who seek or perform abortions. So on the one hand, these companies are saying, you know, oh, you're our employees, we'll take care of you. Uh, on the other hand, they're saying hey, everyone, we're still going to be selling your data, and we're, we're not talking about changing that. So there's been a letter uh, sent to the chair of the FTC, Lena Kahn. It was sent by Senators Ron Wyden, Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker, as well as Sarah Jacobs, which if you're not in the, I believe, San Diego area, people might not know uh, Sarah Jacobs. She's relatively new to the House of Representatives, but she actually introduced a bill recently uh, called the My Body, My Data Act of 2022, which would limit the way um, health apps, in particular period trackers, could store or share your information. And so very interesting, these big names, uh, you know, Wyden, Booker, Warren, are also joined by uh, by Representative Jacobs in this separate letter. 
to the FTC. Uh, I think, again, you know, I, I appreciate the thought that goes into these letters, but again, it's another letter. It's not action. These folks are in Congress. They could be introducing other legislation to ban this kind of data collection in the Senate, to work with Sarah Jacobs, you know, in the House to bring that bill out of committee to strengthen it. I dare say that it could be much stronger and not just targeted around reproductive health, but all health in general. I think there is so much that could be done here. And on the other side, the these companies are really just saying, you know, we provide a service. We are a business where, you know, we're basically providing information to in a data broker market. Uh, the letter, and I agree with it, says it's unregulated data broker market because it is. It is completely unregulated. And that's what the letter is asking the FTC to take charge of. But again, you know, we we had what a, a month, six weeks notice that this, this uh, ruling was coming down, right? We knew this was coming. This was not a surprise, I think, to anyone who had been paying attention this year. And yet just now, June, you know, 24th, uh, this letter comes out June 15th or so, you know, some of this other legislation starts to be drafted. Where have these politicians been over not just the last two months, but the last you know few decades where the, the far right, the Republican Party and elements of the Democrats are doing absolutely nothing in defense of reproductive justice and actually taking obviously these serious measures against to limit reproductive justice. So Yes, there are good ideas in these letters. I'm glad to see some of the bills that are being proposed, but it just it is frustrating and frankly insulting to for these Congress people to just stand up and celebrate themselves um, as if they are doing everything they could possibly do at this point. Yeah, especially since these are some of the same Congress members or this is the same Congress that has been basically kowtowing to uh, the big tech companies and allowing them to use location data to collect uh, privacy information and sell it to the highest bidder. But in in relation to the recently um, uh, handed down Supreme Court decision on abortion, when we're looking at uh, particular pieces of legislation in the states, like if we look at Texas's abortion law that basically uh, offers a bounty for anyone involved in any way in uh, helping uh, to provide someone an abortion. How can this kind of data from, you know, basic, you know, mobile phone apps, how can that kind of data be used to actually uh, uh, carry out that law and put people's lives in danger? Certainly. So they could subpoena the they being, you know, law enforcement can subpoena basically anything that they want from your Internet service provider, your cell phone provider um, or, you know, from a service that you use, no matter what app it is. And if that if they have that information, the, the Sir Google, Apple, whoever it is, if they have that information, they're going to hand it over legally. That is what these companies do. They don't fight. Uh, not often enough of, over that kind of legal process. And so they're going to hand over the information. And let's say it's your search history. Let's say it is you have been searching Google for where to, you know, how to travel outside of Texas to get an abortion. Or you just even search for buses from, let's say you pick, you decide you're going to California. Buses from, you know, Texas to Southern California, which have, you know, near a place that will provide an abortion. 
that could be used to build a case against you. So all it has to take is somebody to do that, that little tip off. And if the police wanted to, if the prosecutors wanted to, they could really dig deep into your search history, your messages, your Facebook account, all of those things with a warrant to try to make the case that you have committed a crime in trying to get health care or to help somebody else get health care, to provide health care to somebody else. You know, we talked on the Covert Action Bulletin podcast today a little bit about the National Right to Life Committee and this model legislation they're providing to uh, all of the states. They're not they're not done. They're continuing on. And it really lays out that they want to criminalize abortion in every single state on a state by state level at this point to finish the job effectively. Um, And this kind of uh, dual civil and criminal uh, attack on people who are involved is really par for the course in what they want. So that's how these companies will become complicit and are complicit in the prosecution of people who are going to be seeking health care. Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, way that they can avoid doing that, being complicit in criminalizing people seeking health care is to simply do what we've been saying they need to do. Stop collecting our private data and selling it to the highest bidder. That seems to be the easy answer, but the thing that none of them want to do. But we're out of time for this segment. Want to thank Chris Garafa so much. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends, we are back. Today is Tuesday, June 28th, and in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and let us know what's on your mind about anything in the world that you are thinking of. Uh, But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that, of course, by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. East. Time, but you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital, and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, 
it's being announced that uh, a Michigan court has tossed out charges against ex-governor uh, Rick Snyder uh, that was stemmed from the Flint water crisis. The Michigan Supreme Court threw out charges against former Governor Rick Snyder and eight others in connection with the Flint water scandal, ruling that a lower court judge lacked the authority to issue indictments in the case uh, under state appointed managers. If you are are uh, not remembering how the Flint water crisis happened, the majority black city switched its water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River to save money that caused corrosive river water from the Flint River to uh, causing lead pipes to a uh, lead to leach from the pipes, the water pipes, exposing thousands of children to lead poisoning led to an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Snyder at the time was charged with two misdemeanor counts of willful neglect of duty. Those charges have been tossed out. The former director of the state's health department, Nick Lyon, and the state's chief medical executive, Eden Wells, were both charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with the deaths of nine people from Legionnaire's disease stemming from uh, this Flint water crisis. So now no one has been held accountable for the Flint water crisis and the deaths that resulted from it. And also Texas, never to disappoint, (laughs) actually uh, the Texas law banning abortion has been temporarily blocked. By the court, a Harris County judge has granted a temporary restraining order today to block a pre-Roe v. Wade abortion ban in Texas, which signals a small victory for abortion rights groups. So we'll continue to watch uh, this Uh, under the temporary restraining order. Abortions up to six weeks can resume in the state at some clinics, according to the ACLU. And the judge's restraining order was in response to a law lawsuit filed Monday by the Center for Reproductive Rights, the American Civil Liberties Union, and two Texas law firms on behalf of several abortion clinics. So the fight back against the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the states is certainly going on in the streets and in the courts and will continue to keep an eye on that story. But we are very happy to be joined to talk about that and many other things by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklike and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me back. Good to be with you, Jacqueline. It is good to have you back. And I am wondering what you are thinking about uh, the two stories I just opened the top of the hour with the fact that Uh, The charges against the folks in Michigan have been tossed out by Michigan Supreme Court. So as as far as I can tell, no one has been held accountable for the Flint water crisis, which is still ongoing. People don't I think people don't realize that Flint and so many other places in this country like it still do not have clean water. And now the people who are responsible for this situation continuing to exist, 
Now they will not be held accountable, not even for misdemeanor charges, uh, Mr. Early. So I feel like this is an interesting moment where we are watching like literally the the January 6th hearing that is supposed to, I guess, expose Trump's complicity in January 6th. And there there are some interesting revelations coming out there where, you know, Trump is being it. People are hoping that Trump will be held accountable for his role in fomenting January 6th. But here we have a Michigan uh, Supreme Court completely uh, refusing to hold anyone accountable for what has been going on to the people in Flint. And I mean, what does this say about the the justice system in this country? Uh, I I guess writ large, how are you seeing this moment? Well, I I think this is another characteristic example um, individual cases that might be fairly or justly decided notwithstanding that uh, this is another reflection of the structural crisis uh, within this country, uh, both in terms of its uh, economy, in terms of its jurisprudence, uh, in terms of its police um, protection, in terms of its health care. Here, uh, people are still proclaiming that this is the greatest country uh, in the history of humankind, and Flint is but just one of many uh, really not fully examined or identified cases in which people can't get to basic necessities like clean water. And, of course, the index here is uh, working poor, uh, marginalized um, people who don't have uh, good access to education or who are living in food deserts. And so it just compounds uh, the crisis in the lives of millions of people across this country. But there's also another indication that not to just mourn, uh, we really have to continue to organize and to strengthen those organized uh, civic and uh, progressive voices uh, who are involved in um, systemic politics. That is looking at the crisis of the overall system and not being seduced uh, from sector to sector. Uh, as though that uh, even in those particular sectors, we have uh, difficulty in getting the powers to be to answer the problem. So we've got to take on uh, the entire system. Uh, it's another reflection of the crisis um, in the leadership uh, status quo of the Democratic Party uh, that uh, is unable to fight, uh, is unwilling to fight, is unwilling to use uh, the executive power, for example, um, in, in the presidency uh, to really fight back against people who are rapidly uh, not only uh, deteriorating democracy, not in some abstract way, but in very practical ways like depriving us of clean water. Yeah. And, I, you know, as I'm as I was watching the uh, January 6th hearings and, you know, listening to the testimony, like which, like I said, today's hearings um, were, were more compelling than I thought they would be. And, and I think that there was uh, um, information conveyed that was very important. I think what you just said about the Democratic Party not being willing to use the power of the presidency to protect women's rights to and to to do anything about the the way that working class and poor people in places like Flint and other places around the country don't have access to the basics for human, uh, uh, you know, that that provide for the basic human rights like clean water, clean air, affordable housing. I mean, but particularly 
in light of the Supreme Court decision, the fact that the Biden administration is not coming out and saying, I am going to use every tool at my disposal, every ounce of power I have, executive order, whatever it is to ensure that a woman's right to decide and control her own reproduction is protected. And instead, we're getting from the Biden administration, you know, we have to vote like never before in the midterms to protect, quote unquote, democracy. So I feel like even though the the, some of the information that is being revealed through these January 6 hearings is interesting and compelling, I feel like it is all it is still a part of this kind of deflecting ploy by the Democratic Party that that some Republicans are completely fine with going along with because they didn't like Trump very much themselves after what uh, he did on January 6th. But I feel like this is used as another kind of deflecting, distracting ploy by the Democrats to to keep our eye off the ball in regard to what they are not doing. And and seeing uh, and, and in not seeing the the insufficient response that we're getting from them in response to what you just said, Mr. Early, the complete dismantling even of the facade of democracy and the the continued marginalization legally of of already marginalized people. And and indeed, I, I think what is being revealed is uh, one we always have to look. Uh, at the actual um, intersections of the power struggle uh, in this or any society, uh, in our or any community, in our or any neighborhood, what is actually being contended for. Even as we realize in the more broader uh, terms of accumulated history that neither of these parties uh, is about a full people-centered democracy in which they're collaborating with the citizens to identify their aspirations and their immediate basic needs in order to uh, set policies uh, for the general welfare. Uh, If that were the case, then we would not uh, continuously see uh, at the bottom of our our society over centuries, uh, Native Americans, uh, Black Americans, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans, immigrant uh, communities of color in in particular. We would, uh, the racialized and genderized nature of oppression and exploitation, of poor health, uh, lack of access to jobs, and the like. Uh, Those are characteristic issues. But immediately what we're seeing is some fractions, attention lines increasing uh, within the Democratic Party, recognizing that still uh, the great majority of our fellow citizens align themselves uh, with one or two of these parties in order to uh, talk about the kinds of policies that they want. Uh, what we're seeing in the case of Joe Biden, and we have to call it a spade a spade here, in my view, it was really important to get rid of the maniacal Donald Trump. Always clear in doing so that we are not getting rid of Trumpism, that is the philosophy and the general policies of discrimination and exploitation and an imperial uh, route across the globe, uh, the reliance on fossil fuels, the reliance on, on fracking, the failure to address full health care. We knew that we were not getting rid of that. But Donald Trump was such a maniacal, megalomaniac wild card uh, that the intensification of that uh, put us even at, at more risk immediately than uh, if we were to get rid of him. But now that we're rid of him, we uh, have to understand what Joe Biden said explicitly all along, and I've said it on this show before. Joe 
Joe Biden's line was always a return to normal order. Uh, what is normal order? The bipartisanism of the old uh, traditional uh, Republican Party of the John McCain's and uh, the Romney's and the Murkowski's and the like, who were never the friends of poor and working white people or poor uh, black people and women or transgender people. They were never our friends. And so even with these hearings, uh, we are seeing that they cannot step outside of the traditional lines of the return to normal order uh, to talk about the rise of Democratic Socialist AOC and the squad as one example. In the context of real politics, that is exactly what uh, what is happening. How do we assess that? Not in abstract terms of whether uh, the squad fits my ideal of what should be done, but the question is what is actually going on. And so Joe Biden and people are, are fighting against that, and so we have to reveal them for what they are. We see uh, Senator uh, uh, Congressman Clyburn, um, who pushed very hard for a quote-unquote black woman, never talked about the ethical, ideological, or political policies that that black woman should put forth. And indeed, so a black woman was elected vice president. But now there is jockeying. Uh, he, he just said two days ago that if Biden doesn't run, because Biden's being described even by former members of the uh, Obama administration, as godling, uh, as too old, as uh, too trapped in an earlier notion of politics not to be able to address the war uh, that is being raged uh, across the country uh, on people, women being the latest case, transgendered uh, people uh, being in, in that, uh, uh, the criminalization of women for controlling and, and making decisions about their own, own, own bodies. The crisis is intensifying, and citizens can't just sit by and wait to see what happens tomorrow, but have to really be engaged. And this is where uh, the, uh, the, the struggle front of electoral politics, among other fronts, the basic one being continuous organizing on the part of people to develop their own party instruments. Uh, but while that is being prepared, uh, we have to take advantage of these fissures and call out and get rid of these people. because. In the final analysis, if we must fight, and my response to that is we must fight, then we must fight with people who are more reflective and stewards the government of our aspirations and our needs uh, than just to complain about the, about the lackings in the Democratic Party. This party is bankrupt. Uh, it's elite elements of bankrupt. That is not an indictment of all of the millions of people that are, vote for that party or even the hundreds or thousands of elected officials in local, state, uh, federal agencies. Not each of them is to be defined by the nature of their relationship with that party. But the party as a status quo, as a leadership, uh, is bankrupt uh, and cannot and will not uh, produce what we need. Uh, they will take us into war as they're continuing to um, intensify the proxy war uh, within Russia and, and, and the Ukraine and bringing us uh, closer to the, the prospects of uh, nuclear conflict. This is the context. And so people must step forward and get new stewards of governance from amongst themselves, not from the political class. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like I, I, I feel like we've had this conversation about Joseph Biden and the fact that I'm not sure what kind of politics people thought they were going to get from this man when he has such a long track record of being a right wing Democrat. I mean, 
of course, now that the Supreme Court has issued its ruling against Roe versus Wade and Clarence Thomas has uh, issued a separate opinion that was separate from the majority opinion. He issued his own uh, opinion saying, please bring these other cases uh, like Griswold and Obergefell uh, Fell and, and, and others to us so we can overrule them. And these are cases uh, that ruled that uh, married women could, in fact, receive uh, contraception without having their husband's consent, uh, obviously uh, recognizing gay marriage, uh, legalizing it and uh, overturning uh, sodomy laws that were all in place in every state in this country. You know, we have a long history with Joe Biden of being responsible for many of the crises that we face today. The fact that student loan debt can't be dis, uh, dispatched with uh, bankruptcy, that's Joe Biden's fault. Uh, the mass incarceration and uh, the overfunding of policing, Joe Biden and his crime bill uh, contributed very heavily to that. Even the proxy war in Ukraine back in 2014, or, you know, the, the Biden, Joe Biden was literally given the folder with the plans for Ukraine uh, and what the United States government wanted to do in order to carry out some type of action to use Ukraine against Russia. So here we are now again with Joe Biden being responsible for not only appointing, not only helping to uh, run the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, but but literally like escorting him proudly. Into And I remember watching this, Mr. Early, watching the hearings, the confirmations on C-SPAN. I remember watching Joe Biden proudly escort that man into the hearings as if he were some type of shield for him while he, at the same time, went after Anita Hill and called that woman practically everything but a child of God in those hearings. And and I just can't help but look back on all of that and ask people, you know, I understand that people felt that, you know, they needed to get rid of Donald Trump. But really, with Joseph Biden's history, what did people think they were going to get, Mr. Early? This, again, this this particular narrative uh, about uh, Joe Biden uh, around delivering onto the country, as you have presented it, I think quite accurately, uh, Clarence Thomas, is one that we really need to go through, I think, in a little more uh, more detail. Uh, my line in the last uh, presidential election was looking at the correlation of forces, we had to align ourselves to get rid of Trump and immediate, and, and doing so to check the box uh, of uh, Biden-Harris. It was not to support Biden-Harris. It was to check that box and to say publicly while we were doing it that we are already organizing to get rid of Biden-Harris in 2022 and 2024. That's got to be the sort of the linkage as we look forward about the contending uh, organized forces of which yet progressives are not strong enough to actually take over uh, the the uh, the executive and, and and legislative bodies, although there is you know they are creeping we are creeping forward on that front, but the real front is again our own day to day organizing that's got to be stronger because ultimately working people, the marginalized, the poor, have to not just be the subjects uh, of what is given to them 
uh, by these people, but we must be the actors of our own democracy. We must be our own stewards of government. We must be the ones who select people. But on this narrative about Joe Biden and, and, and Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, I've been having this little exchange on my Facebook pages, where the only sort of public space that I sort of play around with, is I, too, uh, agreed with and supported Anita Hill. But that was with qualification. I asked myself then, and I asked myself now, and I asked people to ask themselves, what was she doing with this black, dangerous Republican? You know, uh, we can't just uh, look at him as total evil and her as total innocent. So, you know, she's being held up as a kind of virtuous person in the same way that Liz Cheney is being held up, or, or Romney is being held up. And I think there is a flaw and looking at that thread of truth as a whole cloth. What is the whole cloth of, of, of truth here? So we have to ask ourselves, uh, not just hold her up, uh, because we then will repeat this. This is what happened at the other end of the spectrum, if you will. Kamala Harris is not Anita Hill, but that abstract notion of a woman exploited, uh, uh, racialized uh, 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 discrimination in terms of a black woman, so any black woman will do. Well, not any Anita Hill will do. And while she is not to be faulted, she is not to be vaulted up into uh, some um, ideal uh, person that we should be supporting. We've got to break through that 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 uh, narrative, and we have not. The other part of this is I've been in a little debate with people who simply want to uh, express their emotions and call Clarence Thomas a handkerchief Negro. I get it. Uh, we know what the value, what the symbol is, although— uh, Uncle Tom was a lot more complex in uh, that character and how that character balanced right. the relationship between uh, enslaved people in the house and enslaved people in the field. So we overdraw the analogy. But to, to just focus on that label is to miss the whole cloth narrative. And what is the whole cloth narrative? Clarence Thomas is a leader of the right-wing judicial elements of the country. He is not a follower. He is not some person alienated from some essential blackness, uh, as though genetically we are just born to be uh, politically virtuous. We can be as virtuous and lack as much virtue or even more than any people in the world because we're human beings who have will. So he is a dangerous element, and this is where uh, the social democratic people and the the squad come in. I agree with uh, AOC that they must be impeached. He and Kavanaugh and these people who lied uh, about Roe versus Wade, uh, we can't just have a theat- another theatrical performance where we go through uh, narratives and, and interpretation and investigation and reports and do nothing about it. Citizens must demand that these people be removed, and Joe Biden and this administration should be pushed because their crisis is deepening in the status quo Democratic Party, and we will see this in 2022. Already the debate within their own party is uh, whether or not they're going to support Biden or whether they're going to su- support Harris or whether Buttigieg, who's another really problematic, centrist, neoliberal capitalist. Uh, and we just because he's a gay man does not make him uh, uh, overall virtues. That third of truth is important to defend in terms of his identity. But we cannot lean on that as the answer to this holistic uh, 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 systemic problem uh, that we're facing in this country. So that's that's part of what I think we can take away as we fight back against uh, the taking of freedoms and liberties uh, from women, but not get trapped 
around these individual profiles. Yeah, definitely. I want to pick up on this on the other side of uh, our first break of the hour. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And you you said something on the other side of the break, uh, Mr. Early, that I want to pick up on. And that's the idea, you know, that that Anita Hill and her relationship or her whatever, you know, her professional uh, allegiance with Thomas Hill, because I believe uh, with Thomas Clarence, rather, because I I believe she was clerking for him uh, at the time uh, was was problematic. And I agree. I, I and, and I think that that when we're talking about the confirmation of Clarence Thomas and the um, the allegations that she raised about sexual harassment and, and and such, I think that in the context of him being qualified to be a Supreme Court justice, those allegations were obviously valid and relevant. And I think that I think on, on from the outside looking in, people didn't look at what their professional relationship was. They they weren't looking at it from the perspective. And I, and I can say this because I certainly wasn't at the time and I was much younger then. But I think people weren't looking at uh, at it from the perspective of, well, if she was clerking for him or if she, or if she was working for him in his office, then she must share his political views. Right. People were looking at a a a black man who was being confirmed uh, to be a Supreme or who was nominated to be a Supreme Court justice who was being accused of something horrific by a black woman. And I think people kind of felt like they had to take sides. And instead of believing Anita Hill, regardless of what her political affiliation with uh, Clarence Thomas was, they believed Clarence Thomas, and also regardless of what his political affiliation was, because I, I mean, everyone knew that Clarence Clarence Thomas was a conservative Republican. So I, I feel like I feel like when people reference Anita Hill and and Clarence Thomas today, I don't get the feeling that people are are elevating Anita Hill as a kind of 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 hero but I ju- I think people are referencing the fact that she was right about this guy. She told you that he was, you know, w- whatever pejorative you want to put in there, but she she was right about his lack of character as a as a human being. Um so I think that's the context people at least the people I encounter uh, speak to 
are, are, are referencing when they talk about Anita Hill. Not so much, you know, Anita is this saint and this hero. And, and I do agree with you, though. I do think people do not consider, even still, the professional relationship that Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas had. Like, how how was she working for a, a very conservative uh, judge at the time? But I think when people reference her now, it's not as, you know, she is a hero. It's just that Anita was right. She tried to tell us. She was absolutely right as a, an individual human being uh, and the travesty that was being placed upon her in this dominance of a male as well as in the hierarchical relationship and the professional circumstances that we're, we're in. Uh, my point is less about her uh, than it is about uh, uh, the way that we tend to analyze things and the over-personification of more characteristic or systemic issues by focusing on the individual personality. So if you, again, uh, I don't think Anita Hill and her uh, politics, per se, is the same as, let's say, Kamala Harris. That's my own uh, uh, assessment. But let's take the case of Kamala Harris, where to hold her up as the paragon of uh, what happens with black women in general or women in general is an overreading of the narrative. Uh, although sexism allows. This is a card that Hillary Clinton played, that this was all about sexism against her, which then diverts us from looking at what were, what were what was her ideological outlook and what policies did she oppose, and particularly some of the imperialist policies of the destruction of Libya, the uh, uh, murder of Mahmoud Gaddafi. This is where, in the society, we tend to over look at the individual personality, then what is what are the characteristic systemic broader social political issues that are reflected through individuals? And so this is my concern of just saying Anita Hill was right. Yes, she was right and she was to be defended and to be supported. Point in the point. Uh, what what is the step beyond that? And that is where uh, our discussions generally uh, do not go. I think this also happens on the left of the deification or the reification of Fidel Castro, the extraordinary humanist and statecraft person that he was, obscures the fact that a, a political education system that produced a great state people, not of the kind of towering personality that he had, that has allowed them to have three transitions, notwithstanding uh, their own internal contradictions, but have been able to stand up against imperialism because they have a system of national protection and integrity and self-determination and sovereignty, not just the towering individual. I think it was also the case with Mandela, an over-reading of the personality of Mandela as being synonymous uh, with progressive forces in South Africa. And now, in economic terms, uh, they're in worse circumstances than they were under white supremacy apartheid. So I think we've got to open up our analysis while defending the individual and their legal and, 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 and rights of integrity, but not stopping there as somehow that, that answer. So this is, a, if you will, a kind of polemic that I've been uh, taking up, not to in any way besmirch or dismiss the personhood uh, in, this, in this instance of Anita Hill, but not to uh, overdraw uh, the significance of the individual personality when there are larger issues at stake. And the larger issue at stake here for the society at large um, which goes beyond just egregious things that men do to women, which kind of Thomas was an, is, was an example of, but 
now the systemic attack on freedoms in general, no matter what your race, your sexual orientation, your ideological outlook, if you're in the poor, more vulnerable segments of our society, whatever your other identities are, Clarence Thomas is now a right-wing authoritarian leader. He is not just an Uncle Tom follower, and he's leading white uh, right-wingers. Then uh, This is not just about him and black people. This is about him and the conception of a different kind of, na- of nation than the one that working and progressive people are looking at. So anyway, perhaps enough uh, said in my uh, look at trying to draw a, a broader analytical uh, optic uh, to, to take on these issues that too often get uh, just uh, concentrated in the individual personalities. No, I, I actually think this kind of analysis is needed because I, I have a feeling that this is one of the reasons why we have uh, not not the only reason, but but it's one of the reasons why we have a difficult time holding uh, elected officials responsible for uh, things like you just mentioned, imperialism, why why we are, you know, we are so focused on making sure that elected officials do things for us uh, domestically that we miss uh, the, 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 the horrible things that they do around the world to other people. So we miss these connections. And I do think it's, it's connected when we have a myopic view of uh, personalities uh, domestically. I think that does kind of translate into the way we see the world um, in regard to the politicians that we do view myopically and the things that they do. And do do you get a sense that that is also connected to that part of the reason that it's so difficult to push people toward uh, internationalism or even just caring about foreign policy, Mr. Early, is that we we do focus a lot on um uh, uh, being uh, uh, being wedded to a very myopic view of politics in general. I think it is. I mean, the inculcation of American exceptionalism, uh, the socialization is so deep and transcendental over generations and generations that the narrow construct of we as Americans vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And while, yes, we share with the rest of the world poverty and disease and lack of education, uh, and the racialized and genderized nature of these uh, de- uh, deprivations in our society. In relative terms, uh, our society as a whole, from a material point of view, is much better off than others because of the super exploitation uh, of those other areas of the world and the continued imposition of U.S. imperial domination across the globe to reinforce the super exploitation of the, 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 the super uh, of violence uh, in these societies. Take Colombia, for example, or take Brazil uh, as, a, as another example, or take Joe Biden now going to Saudi Arabia, where he's saying in order to relieve some percentage of the economic pressure on uh, U.S. society about gas or about grain and wheat coming out of Ukraine and coming out of Russia, uh, he will now make an alliance with fascists, bloody fascists, really, which is less a country than it is a family clan over centuries that dominates that area of the world, having just killed uh, openly a U.S. citizen, which everybody agrees, including Joe Biden agrees. And then we somehow, uh, in the broad sense of we, the editorial we, end up supporting that, that kind of position. 
uh, this narrow issue of, of gender and racial discrimination of, a, of an American exceptionalism when we've got Austin, a black general head of the Pentagon, saying the goal of this proxy war is to weaken Russia. And, of course, gas prices are going up. Food prices are, are going up. Uh, we've got Greenfield at the U.N., a, a black woman who is upholding apartheid uh, 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 occupational Israel who's saying nothing about Haiti or about the blockade against Cuba. And we've got the vice president of the United States, I don't know, who has sort of disappeared into the ether and has trotted out occasionally uh, in kind of symbolic ways, uh, but who is being talked about as, as really not having uh, the wherewithal in her own party. And so we get skewed in this American exceptionalism. And I think this blunts our relationship, uh, our, hu- our humanity relationship with people across the world. On the other hand, there are really uh, points of light uh, that are promising in the way that the solidarity people across some ideological and political grounds here in the United States uh, relates to the medical brigades in Cuba and the humanitarian uh, contributions they make uh, all, all across the world. And there are other people-to-people examples that we have to really uplift and get more people to um, self-organize around, to engage uh, other civic organizations and our political formations uh, that are promising, who are trying to live the new world possible in the, in the sort of small ways that they might. This is how the integration of these uh, citizen uh, initiatives uh, can really begin to take on more the systemic crisis that we're facing and shorten what will be over a very long run, but shorten it nevertheless, of some kind of ultimate transformation uh, in the society to a better, humane place. I would not likely be around, but we make the contributions that we can while we are here and uh, be satisfied with that we do the best that we can and engage this current generation of young activists uh, who were on full display, I want to say, about four weeks ago when I was in Los Angeles at the People's Summit for Democracy, which was the counter uh, summit of the American people against uh, the failed uh, summit of, of the Americas uh, that Joe Biden and Blanken of the State Department just totally fumbled to their own embarrassment. These are signs that we have young adults who are involved in, in unions and immigrant rights issues and women's issues and youth issues who are living these new values, and we have to begin to link uh, horizontally, not just vertically, that my group is better than your group, but to find those areas of intersection where we do have common cause and to find the proper arena to continue to debate of how we clarify what is the road ahead, but not let uh, the debate about the road ahead uh, uh, undermine us in dealing with the road that's right before us, uh, that we are basically being crushed, and to the extent that we can uh, horizontally integrate these initiatives uh, at the ballot box on the day-to-day uh, organizing in communities for health care and the like, uh, we can solve off uh, some amount of this crisis uh, because uh, we are under really, really a heavy global interconnected crisis now. And the Biden administration is only taking us deeper uh, into the pain that comes from letting these people dominate. Absolutely. We are going to move to another quick break, but we'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320, 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And we were talking about internationalism on the other side of the break. And I, I do find hope, Mr. Early, in the fact that because of the crisis uh, with uh, gas prices and uh, other economic issues that the U.S. and the EU and NATO caused with their little proxy war in Ukraine, the U.S. has had to go to none other than Venezuela, hat in hand, uh, to ask for oil. Basically, it's been reported that on Monday, Venezuela's president, the actual president, the real one, the one that the people in Venezuela elected, Nicolas Maduro, confirmed that a delegation from the United States government arrived in Caracas with the aim of continuing the bilateral dialogue that began in March. Uh, they uh, said... Uh, Alahed News uh, reported that after the start of the Ukraine conflict in February, Washington sent a high-level delegation to Caracas and uh, pointed out that the White House said that talks focused on American, quote-unquote, energy security due to the spike in oil prices. Uh, And this coincides with the fact that on Monday, the Group of Seven or the G7 summit that took place in Germany, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron called for reincorporating, get this, Mr. Early, Iran and Venezuela into the oil market in order to overcome the global energy crisis. Now, I, I hope that President Nicolas Maduro is a lot less petty than I am, because if I were he, the ruckus I would be making about the fact that the U.S. government has had to come and recognize me as the legitimate president after years of claiming that I wasn't propping up this false president whose name even members of the Democratic Party cannot remember and pronounce now, um, I I would be milking this moment for every piece of petty that I could get out of it. But thankfully, I'm hoping that President Maduro is a lot more diplomatic than I am. He seems to be. But I am wondering what you think about these developments and the seeming willingness of at least one European partner of the U.S. to have some type of legitimate relations with Iran and Venezuela, even if it's even if it's just so they can, uh, uh, you know, have transactions with them uh, to ease their oil crises. But they have to recognize the legitimacy of those countries' governments, Mr. Early. Well, there are a number of uh, to be peeled back here, first starting with Nicolas Maduro, whom I have not seen in about three years now, but whom I have uh, visited with on several occasions uh, over the last few decades uh, during his tenure as vice president uh, with the extraordinary late president Hugo Chavez, uh, and who I've had occasion to visit on a number of occasions and and to have an audience with him, uh, one or two of us, 
uh, on various issues, particularly around Afro-descendant issues uh, in this hemisphere. Uh, first of all, he is a very committed working-class man who's a trade unionist uh, historically. He's a, a man of faith, uh, a religious uh, person, and uh, he is serious uh, about public power. Now, in that context, he does not present himself as uh, some extraordinary individual human being, uh, certainly not in the parallels of of his uh, predecessor, uh, Hugo Chavez, or, or, uh, or Fidel Castro, or, or people of that order. But he's involved in the realism of politics, or real politic of what are the complexities of the competing forces at any given moment. And while you are motivated and informed and directed by high ideals and principles, you have to look at what is the nature of the compromise, given uh, actually uh, how people are trying to put their foot on your neck or have their foot on your neck. So secondly, then, what is unfolding here is the complexities of the new world, the multipolarity, as now is being talked about, in the world in which the United States can no longer simply trump around the globe uh, with its over 800 uh, military bases around the world and its extraordinary military might in the way that it used to. People are fighting back, and we're seeing a change in the correlation of forces where uh, now the BRIC countries, again, are in resurgence. That is Brazil, Russia, India, China. Now you've got Iran wanting to join uh, uh, the BRIC uh, countries. Uh, China is buying a lot of uh, oil uh, out of Venezuela and a lot of grain and soy uh, out of uh, Brazil and a lot of discount oil from Russia and grain uh, from Russia and, and the like. And so this is now forcing contradictions in this society where they just can't simply go in with military might and take over this, this is the U.S. government, and uh, they got to find compromise. Uh, U.S. Uh, oil corporations have all along wanted to maintain a relationship with Venezuela, which, is, which was once, I think, the third of the fourth largest supplier some uh, decades, a decade or so back now uh, of the U.S. It is the largest uh, oil reserve in the world. And, of course, off the coast of Brazil, there's also another significant oil reserve, which has not been totally uh, calculated. And so the U.S. has little choice uh, but to get in and compete with the Chinese for it. And the Saudis have already told them, uh, as of yesterday or day before yesterday, it will take, they will take six months before they start altering the production of oil to try to lower uh, the cost. So we're seeing a, a multipolarity emerging. The pink tide, as it is often referred to uh, in Latin America, is in resurgence with the recent election in Colombia of uh, Petro and Francia Marquez. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Chile, uh, um, uh, Argentina, uh, there may be a new progressive coming out of Paraguay soon. It is expected that Lula da Silva will win in October in Brazil. And so that the Biden administration is having to uh, now adjust to the realism of this multipolarity, these new competitive forces, and to back away from this right-wing ideological perspective that Blinken and the Biden administration, State Department, who was upholding this clown, Guaido, for whom no Venezuelan, even uh, right-wing or, or, or legitimate oppositional Venezuelans, no one has ever put down a vote for Guaido as the president of Venezuela. So uh, they're being pushed to the side. John Bolton, the very dangerous uh, right-wing uh, 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 political scientist in, um, and national security, has, and two days ago has come out with an article 
saying that he sees that the Venezuelan opposition is likely to split and that Guaido, uh, there's, there's no confidence in him to be competitive in this new correlation of forces that's emerging. U.S. citizens need to immerse themselves in this complexity and to try to understand that notwithstanding where we may have critiques here or there, and the U.S. left has had this problem as well of these idealisms that we get trapped in. Uh, they don't fit my uh, Ten Commandments, uh, therefore. Uh, well, the Ten Commandments have to be put down in real circumstances, and then you find out that we are all fallible human beings, some of us better than others. And so this is what is going now in uh, having to now go back and deal with the real politics. And uh, for whatever critiques legitimately that might be raised about uh, uh, Maduro in Venezuela, he has steered uh, the statecraft very effectively, and they are on the rebound with their economy. And now Colombia under Petro and Marquez, the new president and vice president, are going to open up relationships. There are hundreds of thousands of Colombians who are living in Venezuela, even as hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans have been pushed out by the economic circumstance coming to Mexico. U.S. citizens have to get involved in the complexity of these marriages and not by these bipolar arguments of, of either or. So this is, I think, the context of the, of the diplomacy of the statecraft that Nicolas Maduro, President Nicolas Maduro in, in Venezuela is now uh, showing. Yeah, and, and the complexities of this particular moment only uh, continue as Iran and Venezuela signed a 20-year cooperation plan during Maduro's recent visit to uh, Iran. Now, the the it's called a cooperation roadmap. The, the details of the roadmap, we don't know what they are. They've been kept under wraps. But we do know that there was a 20-year agreement signed by the foreign ministers of the two nations in the presence of their respective presidents. But I think the fact that both of these countries have been uh, and are being heavily sanctioned by the U.S. government um, are a forging an agreement, a 20-year agreement, uh, that there have already been direct flights between Tehran and Caracas uh, established. The fact that both of these countries have been and are standing up to American imperialism and hegemony at the same time as we see, uh, Mr. Early, this pink tide uh, gaining momentum uh, in the global South, I think this moment is feeling, looking, um, I think will go down in history as the 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 moment the multipolar world was reborn or the moment that the bipolar world uh, died. I'm wondering how you feel about the importance of this particular agreement. You're absolutely right. And then again, this is where American citizens, whether we are janitors, street sweepers, nurses, dentists, school teachers, uh, wherever we are in the sociology of the mix of citizenship and residents and immigrants in this country, we must pay more attention, become more active in doing our own learning. Under the Obama administration, when he said we must turn to the East, that was an indication that something new, for, indication for us, that something new was happening in the world that we had not paid attention. Of course, one can over-describe uh, that as simply the emergence of China. Of course, that is the qualitative factor. But the emergence of China is also the opening of Eurasia. Uh, this is where we're seeing 
the the Silk Road route, uh, all of these new infrastructural projects uh, uh, going into India, going into uh, Eastern Europe, um, where now we know that uh, 40% of the gas and oil coming uh, that upholds Western Europe comes out of Russia. Uh, what, 30-some odd percent or more of, of the grain coming out of the Ukraine. These things have been there for a long, long time. Uh, but we, in our narrowness and in our insularness of being uh, U.S. citizens, notwithstanding the conflicts and tensions among us, uh, must begin to look more horizontally across the world and to do our own analysis. Uh, otherwise, these people will keep us behind the eight ball. So what uh, Nicolás Maduro has just come come back is from Euro-Asia, uh, where there's this New South-South, as you pointed out, relationship, which has been around for a long time with the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, uh, 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 Turkey is, is, is playing both sides of that, both locals, because Turkey, uh, actually, its borders is both in Europe and in Asia. You can you go across the Baltic River and, and uh, with an hour or so on a boat, you're in Europe or then you're back in, in, in Asia. We have to pay attention to these things and become active. And the reason we have to become active is that even from amongst ourselves of selecting people who will be stewards of governance, we've got to select people who are situated in the new world that is emerging, not just the old world from which we, we, we come. And our tendency with this American exceptionalism is to think that the world spins around uh, the United States, that somehow this is the pivot. Uh, if ever that was true, it is no longer true. They said the sun would never set on the British Empire, but it's set. Uh, notwithstanding the dangers still coming from the imperial forces out of Great Britain. Uh, this is what uh, the Maduro uh, trip was about uh, into Euro-Asia. This is what the new discussion. People should look at Tricontinental Press and were with Vijay Prashad and folk like that, uh, where you'll get very accessible analyses. These are not eggheads trying to show off how smart they are. With right. Analysis that we have to be putting into the dictionary. <laughs> but they're very accessible ways. And of course, uh, right here, by any means necessary, we get that same kind of political education that I like to uh, uphold when I'm engaged with you all in the area. It's a very important political education forum that people should not just listen to, but people should contribute to with their own information, their own critiques, their own analysis. Um, this is how we will prepare ourselves uh, for a stronger citizenship to fight these crises that we're now facing. Absolutely. A better world is possible and we must organize to realize it. And we must organize in solidarity with other peoples around the world who are also struggling for that better world and struggling against U.S. imperialism and the hegemony of this country, this government and its allies uh, to break the bipolar control of the world onto a multipolar world. World, absolutely. And more work is required. Uh, but if you don't struggle, then you don't deserve to win. But I want to thank Mr. James Early so much for joining me today. We are out of time for today's show. Thank you for watching. And we will be back tomorrow with a whole new show. So until then, be good to each other, be good to yourselves and take care. Peace. By any means necessary.